Okay, so we're starting a new series today, and what I'm going to talk about is our life as an epic tale. Do you like stories? I know you do. I know, I know everybody likes stories because I see the parking lots full at the movie theaters. Every movie is a story. Uh, people used to read books, and some, some still do. And generally speaking, uh, the most popular and lasting and enduring books are stories. We are living a story. And our author is Jesus. He's the author and finisher of our faith. And world history is a story. And all the elements that make a story great are there because they reflect the way God made the world. So let me illustrate. In big history, there's a hero. Every story has to have a hero. The hero is Jesus. And Jesus asks us to follow in his footsteps, which means he wants us to be heroes in our story, or heroines. Um... Most of us don't think of our lives that way. But my challenge to you is it's the proper way to think. Scripture says we are to walk in good works which he prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Well, that's a story. God has written a story for us. The drama in the story is will we play our part or will we not? See, he, he's, he scripted it for us, but then he gives us a choice. It's never interesting in a movie or a story or a book if you already know what's happen, what happens when the uh, world phenomenon of uh, Harry Potter took place. I remember reading about the last installment and all the people who tried to spoil the book for everyone and ran around saying uh, whether Harry Potter dies at the end or not. Because it spoils it if you don't know what's going to happen. And, and yet, um, and yet, you, you always know the hero gets there, but somehow the drama's real. You know, that's the best stories. Well, in this story, there's elements of both. And we'll be talking about that. Every great story, every epic tale has a quest of some sort. We have a quest. Jesus had a quest. Who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame. And therefore, because he was obedient even to death on the cross, he's been exalted above every name. Well, he had a quest. It was not an easy quest. You know, in every great tale, if it's easy, it's not interesting. There have to be great obstacles. And what we want to see is, does the hero or the heroine have the character to endure and get through these terrible <coughs> obstacles? That's what we want to know. There's also has to be an antagonist in every great tale. The stepmother. Or the... Uh, villainous, traitorous 
lieutenant that wants to be the real king or somebody. And of course, in our tale, there's an antagonist. It's a sin. Satan. Death. It's a triumvirate. And they're trying to knock us off of our chosen path, our, our, our uh, authored path, I should say. They, they don't want us to succeed. And the drama of whether we will prevail or not is up to us. So, the, the influence of this, of thinking about this this way, can be incredibly powerful. <clears throat> We run an investment company. Basically, any oil and gas business is an investment business. So, we study investment psychology quite a bit. And one of the, uh, as does Mark, now that's what he does for a living: is try to get people not to, not to be uh, make make decisions based on emotions, but on facts and things like that. And one of the one of the things that we do as humans is we look at data and instead of assembling the data and then putting it into a story, we immediately take the data into an existing story we have and think of it from the standpoint of what caused that. And one of the, one of the problems with our stories is they're mostly not true. <laughs> Uh, a good question you can ask yourself is, what story are you telling yourself? We always have this conversation going on in our head. Apparently there's a Pixar movie out now about this. I haven't seen it yet. Uh, Micah said it was really fantastic. Uh, but I live that every day. I've, I've got all these characters vying for attention in my head. The spirit, the flesh, um, other people's voices... And I have to make a decision. But ultimately, you're going to put things into a story so you can understand it. That's what we do. What we want to do is make the story true. So that's what we're going to be talking about over the next few weeks. We're going to look at the different aspects of a tale, a journey. There's usually a journey involved. There's a quest. So we'll look at the terrains of the journey. We'll look at the valleys. We'll spend a whole week on the valleys. Well... Probably next week is, is what we'll do there. And, you know, those are hard times when we go through the valleys. We'll look at Job. Job is maybe the ultimate valley experience. Uh, we'll look at the uh, mountaintops. Now, we tend to think of the mountaintops as where we want to be all the time, but that's really not the case. And oftentimes, mountaintops can be some of our greatest trials. And we'll look at that. We saw a little of that from Peter uh, when he was on the ultimate mountaintop experience. And then we're going to look at the in-betweens, everyday life. And most of our heroic actions take place in everyday life. We just need the eyes to see that that's what's happening. Then, of course, every tale has components, a beginning and an end, for example. And we'll look at the beginning of our tale and our, our adventure We'll look at the end. What is it we're really looking for? So that's an example of some of the kind of things that we're going to be looking at. But today, I just want to focus on this notion that our life is an epic adventure. 
Let me start with an example of something that's probably fairly dear to all of us, some more than others. And that is a particular epic tale that's popular in our culture. Snow White, the Seven Dwarfs. It came out as a Disney movie in 1937. Snow White. But it was a remaking of a grim fairy tale that comes from a hundred years prior. And the Grimm's apparently took it from oral tradition. So this story goes back, no telling how long, and there's many versions of it. In the German version of Snow White, the, the wicked mother has, tells the huntsman to, uh, to bring back the lungs and the liver to prove that the girl's dead, and when they, when they bring it back, she has it cooked and eats it. I think Germans may be a little more <laughs> bloodthirsty, maybe, than us. So, Walt appropriately whitewashed that a little for us. Maybe a little too graphic. But 1937, that's a long time. And I looked up a little bit about the Disney Princess franchise, which was only started as a deliberate sales effort in 2001. One of the Disney executives went to some function and noticed all the little girls with little Halloween costumes pinned on themselves, little cheap things, and said, well, we got to fix this. So he went in and said, well, let's start a Disney... Uh, princess initiative they sold 300 million dollars of product their first year by 2006 their sales were up to 3 billion dollars we visited a Disney store not long ago and they had an entire section that was the princess section and we bought some nightgowns for our granddaughters with the little princesses all over them. There's 12 princesses now. The very first was Snow White. One of our enduring memories of Snow White was going to Disneyland and our one of our granddaughters was about two at the time. And after a long day, I mean, they, they really did a great job of staying awake. Um, she's, she's only two and a half or so. We asked her, Addie, what did you like today? And we'd gone to one of these character, you know, luncheons. And she said, Snow White smiled at me. I get my jammies, go to bed. <laughs> That's, that was her day. Snow White smiled at me. Well, you know, this is a big deal, to this idea of a princess. Well, let's just look at the tale of Snow White. Uh, We have this heroine who's a princess, the rightful heir to the throne, but not yet exactly ready to ascend the throne. She has some growing up to do first before she can ascend the throne. There's a usurper that doesn't want her to ascend the throne, the evil stepmother, who's sitting in the position of being the queen but has no right to do so. 
The evil queen is bent on deceit and murder. To knock out this child who would take her place. And she succeeds in a form of death for Snow White because exile is a form of death. And Snow White is exiled out of the palace and into the scary forest where she lives with the dwarves. But Snow White, because of her character, chooses to be happy and cleans and cooks and serves the dwarves and perseveres. But that's not good enough for the evil stepmother who seeks her out and deceives her into eating an apple that's poison. And this apple causes her to go into a deep sleep. The dwarves thinks she's dead. But it turns out she was only mostly dead. <laughs> and you know there's a big difference between all dead and mostly dead. So the prince comes and resurrects her through love. And they live happily ever after. Does any of that sound familiar? Well, if we want to take the analogy and make it even more applicable, we can look at the Disneyland ride, Snow White, Scary Adventure. Because you can go on that ride and it takes two minutes. And in two minutes, you can see the heroine and the evil witch and the apple and the whole thing. And that is really an appropriate picture of our life because, think about it, in our existence, if we were to have a grease board up behind us and we drew a line that represented our entire existence, what would it look like? It would have a dot on the left side that's the beginning point, because all of us had a beginning. And then it would go on and have an arrow on the other side because there's no end. And what would the relative proportion of our existence look like in this life? A speck? James says our life is like a vapor. You're heating up some water to make some tea and the vapor comes out and you see it for a short time and then it's gone. Even Lord of the Rings, which is we'll talk about at the end. It's one of the greatest epic tales of all times. You can watch it in six hours. And these tales condense a massive amount of effort and information to a very short time. And that's kind of the way our life is. It seems long sometimes. But... When you look back, you think, man, it just seems like a few minutes ago that I was doing something and it was 17 years ago. I, tr I tried on one of my suits last night. I still think of it as kind of a new suit. And I told Terry, 
I remember buying this suit. It was 17 years ago. It just, in, a, in another way, it just goes by so fast. Well, let me show you from the Scripture a specific passage that just cements in this notion that our life is an epic tale. And we are the bride, the princesses, who want to be redeemed by our prince. Look at Psalm chapter 8. Psalm chapter 8. We'll look at Psalm 8 and Hebrews 2, which quotes Psalm 8. And let's just look at how the creation is supposed to be in Psalm 8. And then we'll look in Hebrews 2 and we'll see a commentary on Psalm 8. And what the Hebrew author will tell us what really is. Psalm chapter 8. O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is your name in all the earth, who have set your glory above the heavens. So God is the creator. And His glory is independent of anything He made. Glory just means someone's essence being observed. And God's essence is observed in all things. His glory is totally independent of anything we'll ever do. The only thing we really contribute to His glory is to either reflect it or to be an observer. Because someone's essence has to be being observed. And the writer here is saying, man, your glory is above the earth. I'm going to skip two and come back to it. Verse 3, when I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you've ordained, what is man that you're mindful of him? I mean, look, look at this giant universe. Look at all this order, this amazing design, this, this array of creatures. And, and the fact that Everything works like a Swiss watch. And the principalities and powers in the heavenly places and you're spending so much time and attention on us. It's baffling. Why would you do that? What is man and the son of man that you visit him? Verse 5. For you've made him, man, a little lower than the angels. Okay, So angels are higher than us in the creative order. They can do more than we can do. I don't know what all that means. They're at least more powerful than we are. We can see that from the Scripture. Presumably, they have greater intellectual capacity than we do. They're higher than us. And yet, verse 5, you have crowned him, man, humanity, with glory and honor. So God has this glory that's way above everything. And then there's these angels that are the highest created being. And then there's the earth and there's us. And he's given us glory and honor. So he's got glory and honor. There's somebody in between us and he's given us glory and honor. What is the glory and honor? Verse 6, you've made him, man, to have dominion over the works of your hands. So this writer's saying, so let me get this. You made this world. You are the... Above it all, shouldn't you run it? Shouldn't you run it? You're the one above all. Uh, No, I want you to run it. You humanity. Well, so now I'm still still confused. Isn't there this whole group of beings that are higher than us? Shouldn't they run it? Um, 
I want you to run it. Well, that's just, it's baffling. It's, it's astonishing. Why would you want to do that? You've made him to put dominion of the works of your hands. You put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, even the beasts of the field, the birds of the air, the fish of the sea that pass through the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is your name in all the earth. Let's just skip over quickly to Hebrews 2.5, and then we'll go back and finish up Psalm 8. In Hebrews 2.5, the... Paul, I think, is the writer here, says, For he has not put the world to come, of which we speak in subjection to angels, but one testified in a certain place, saying, because he didn't do it to angels, he put it in subjection to humans, What is man that you're mindful of him, or the son of man you take care of him? You made him a little lower than the angels, you've crowned him with glory and honor, set him over the works of your hands, put all things in subjection under his feet. So he's quoting Psalm 8 here. But then listen to what he says. For in that he put all in subjection under him, man, he left nothing that's not put under him, but now we do not see all things put under him. Well, that may be the biggest understatement ever stated. Is everything in the world happening in good order? With harmony among all people and all creation where we have Communion with the fish of the sea? Have you gone out to the ocean and summoned a fish to take you someplace lately? You know, this is why we love SeaWorld, right? Because that's the way it's supposed to be. We're supposed to actually talk to Flipper and have Flipper be able to converse with us, like on the TV show. That, that's actually the way it's supposed to be. It's anything but that. You only get that in an amusement park. And occasionally, the pleasant pet orca eats somebody. <laughs> so it's not the way it's supposed to be. Why? Well, let's go back and look at verse 2, which kind of is in this Psalm 8 with this wonderful notion, and it's in there like a cymbal clash in a sonata. It just... It just kind of breaks up the harmony. Verse 2, Out of the mouth of babes and nursing infants, you, God, have ordained strength because of your enemies that you may silence the enemy and the avenger. So here it is. See, we're a little lower. Snow White was a child. She was a minor. And the adult knew that Snow White was eventually going to take her place, so wanted to kill her and knock her out of the way. Well, here it is right here. That's us. We're lower. And God has appointed us to a place that's higher. Satan was supposed to be the one that ruled the earth in perfect communion and harmony with God. But what he said is, I don't need you anymore. And he fell. And even though he's still the prince of this world, he's lamed up. He's just serving until the new elected officials step in. And who is that? It's supposed to be us. Meanwhile, we are in a scary forest. You know, the the first episode of the enemy and the avenger 
bringing death into the world was the apple in the garden. We don't know it was an apple. It was fruit. The poison apple. Eve ate it. Adam ate it. And they had a death. The death that day was exile. You know, Socrates was given the choice of hemlock or exile. He chose hemlock. Because to be banished from community with his state that he had served was worse than just not existing anymore. Lots of other deaths happened that day. There was the death of harmony between Adam and Eve. There was the death of relationship between the fellowship between God and Adam and Eve. There was the break in harmony between the man and animals, humanity and animals. God had to kill a beast to get them some clothes. The worst of all deaths was the division that happened inside of Adam where there were three parties standing in the conversation and God said, what happened here? And Adam's answer was, the woman who you gave to me deceived me. So there's three possible parties of responsibility and Adam blamed the two that weren't him. And this internal self-deception death is something that plagues us ever since. And of course, the clock started on their physical death as well. Death entered the world. The enemy was the agent of the death entering the world, but God's notion is that that will be redeemed. Adam was supposed to choose to rule the earth in perfect harmony with God, with the creation. He fell. Let's go back to Hebrews 2. We say this the order that God has ordained is for humanity to be the rulers of the world. But again in verse 8, we do not yet see all things put under humanity. It's not as it's supposed to be. We have tyrants and murderers and groups of people that want to chop off other people's heads because they don't agree with them and war and pestilence. That's what we have in our world today. But here's what we do see. Verse 9. But we see Jesus. So we don't see the world in perfect harmony. What do we see? We see Jesus. Who was made a little lower than the angels. Jesus became man. For the suffering of death. And he was crowned with glory and honor. Jesus has already been installed on the throne. Just not here physically yet. But it's happened. It's already happened in heaven. That he, by the grace of God, might taste death for everyone. Now, look at this, verse 10. For it was fitting for him, Jesus, for whom are all things... By whom are all things. He's the author. He's the fulfillment. He's the hero of our story. But in bringing many sons to glory. What was the glory? To rule the earth. To make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. And the point of Hebrews, that, which is a book written to believers, clearly. 
The point of Hebrews is, Jesus is the great hero of all creation. Jesus has already ascended to this throne that God ordained for us. This is our fulfillment. Don't you have a longing to be somebody and do something that you never can quite feel? If you don't, you probably uh, need to stop taking whatever it is you're taking. Because that's the way we're made. And what that longing is, is to be a part of something great that is total harmony and fulfillment. That's how we get our ultimate fulfillment. And Jesus is already sitting there saying, Come on, come on and sit with me. Seven churches to Revelation, church to Laodicea, the seventh one. Jesus says, To the him who overcomes, I will give to him to sit with me on my throne, as I overcame and sat on my throne. See, Jesus was an overcomer. Overcomer, Jesus didn't overcome by accepting Jesus into his heart. Jesus overcame because he endured temptation. He endured the pain and agony that was standing between him and obedience, even to death on the cross. It's greatness. So what does Jesus want us to do? He wants us to follow him. He wants many sons to glory. But, look at 2 Timothy 3. Maybe it's 2. 2 Timothy, uh, I think it's 2. 2 2 Timothy 2.11 If we died with Him, we shall also live with Him. And we'll have a whole segment here on the amazing grace of God, which is something that cannot be earned and it cannot be lost. If we're born in Christ, it's nothing we can lose. However... There is something we can lose. Because verse 12 says, If we endure, we shall reign with Him. See, if we die with Him, we shall live with Him. That's unconditional. But if we want to reign with Him, that's conditional. And that requires endurance. And what is at stake is the fulfillment of who God made us to be. Now, There will be joy in heaven. Again, we'll have a whole session on this too. This is just an overview. There will be joy in heaven for all. Everyone's cup will be full. Not everybody will have the same size cup. And the size of our cup is largely what we're determining in this life. This is uh, Pastor G.H. Lang that made a comment about this Hebrews passage. And he says, In the purpose of God, the inhabited world of the future has not been put under the control of angels, but of men. At present, God is selecting from it the company that are to rule the universe, superseding the existing government. He is preparing for a complete reorganizing of his entire empire. 
and is giving to these future rulers the severe training. You ever feel like life is a severe training? It's because it is. The severe training which is indispensable to fitting them for such responsible duties and high dignities. There is manifest wisdom in a great leader first training a body of efficient subordinates before seeking to reorganize society at large. And what is it that Jesus did to qualify himself to be elevated above every name? Became the servant of all. See, God doesn't like tyrants. That's what Satan wanted to be. What God wants is servants. And what he's looking for is, who will serve? Even when the service doesn't seem reasonable or feasible, who will serve? That's who I want to run my universe. See, he's already the captain of our salvation. And in Hebrews, the salvation we're talking about predominantly is the salvation from futility of living in sin and following the evil stepmother's way of doing things. Well, another great epic tale that we can look at for correlation is the Lord of the Rings. Probably my favorite. I like Snow White. But you know, I never had any princess gear. I know that in the God's economy we're all have played the female role and that we are the bride, we're the responders. And I I embrace that. But you know, the idea of being a king is more appealing to me as a male. Uh, but the Lord of the Rings doesn't start with the king. It starts with the hobbits. And in a, in a real way, we are all hobbits. What is a hobbit? It's a diminutive creature who has uh, hairy feet and uh, eats six or seven meals a day and seeks, seeks comfort and fellowship among one another above all. And I can identify with that. Hobbits, as a general rule, don't like adventure. They don't like change. They don't like trouble. And into this hobbit world's uh, hobbits, this hobbit named Bilbo and Frodo, into their world comes crashing in this wizard, Gandalf, who asks them to save the world and go on an adventure that's basically impossible and destroy the ring of power because Sauron, the antagonist in this uh, tale, has immense power and he's concentrated in this ring but he's lost the ring and now he's looking for it. And it can only be destroyed by going back to the place in which it was forged, Mount Doom. And everybody knows it's impossible, but but it has to be attempted. So what we're going to do is give this quest to the weakest of all the creatures, the most unlikely suspect of all, a hobbit. But to accompany him on the way is Aragorn. And Aragorn, now Aragorn, he's quite a character. His whole family are the rightful kings of the biggest city, Gondor. 
But right now, there's stewards that are ruling Gondor. And even though he knows he's the king, Aragorn, it's not his time to yet make himself known. To become king in reality. He's just king spiritually now. So what does he do? Well, he spends most of his time chasing dragons and trolls on the border of the Shire to keep the Shire safe. So you would think he'd be a great hero within the Shire. But when he goes into the Shire to get a, uh, a bite to eat or something, the hobbits look at him very suspiciously because he's kind of this foreboding, scary character. And they're not too sure about him. They call him Strider. And they're just, he's a little scary. Does it bother Aragorn that he's serving and keeping them safe and they don't even appreciate it? Ta. He doesn't care in the least. Why? He's king. That's what kings do. Kings, kings are kingly. He risks death for these people daily. Oh, he doesn't care about dying. No big deal. On the other hand, there is something he is afraid of. Deathly afraid of. Losing his honor. Now that's unthinkable. He would never do that. Not, not in a million years. He would never say something and not follow through and do it. He would never shrink from a challenge that is his lot. Well, that's who we want to be like. And and Aragorn is a picture of us too. Just like Snow White is the rightful heir, but she's not her time to ascend the throne. Aragorn's the rightful heir, but he's waiting for the proper time and the proper season to ascend the throne. And in his case, it's prophetic when he will ascend the throne. Well, there's a reason why we like these tales. It's about us. And we see ourselves in these heroes and heroines because that's what we're supposed to be. And yet, it seems to us as though what we do isn't that important. And we'll delve into this in great depth because it turns out that the illustration Jesus used to make sure we understood this point, the illustration Jesus used of something that's great is to serve children and to give cold water in His name. Those are the actions of greatness that Jesus wanted us to understand. So, most of this has to do with perspective. The perspective we take about our life, about what matters in life, and about what life's about. Severe training. Well, severe training. Who wants severe training? Does anybody want severe training? Uh, Olympic athletes want severe training. Doctors want severe training. It's necessary to get where you want to go. So, that's what we do. We're apprenticing. And apprenticing is severe training. Now, does that mean there's never supposed to be any joy along the way? Of course not. Jesus said, My joy may remain in you and that your joy may be full. But the joy is something that we choose. James said, Choose joy, choose happiness when you encounter various trials. Because these trials are there to make you great. That's what they're there for. 
almost everybody hates hard practice. But there's a joy in understanding this is getting me to my goal. Do you not know we shall judge angels? Paul asked in 1 Corinthians 6. In Revelation 1, 5 and 6. To him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood and has made us kings and priests to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Has made us kings and priests. That is our role in the play that God has written. And He's written this role for each one of us, specifically for us, in the works He prepared beforehand for each one of us. It's a once-in-an-existence opportunity. When we get to heaven, we're going to see God. And then we're going to know by sight. And we're going to know by sight for the whole rest of our existence. But in this time is our once in a existence opportunity to know God and follow Him by faith. And as we'll be delving into over the coming weeks, there's something about that that we vastly underappreciate that is actually an enormous opportunity that we don't want to miss out on one iota. So, what's the bottom line of all this? Life really matters. Your life has been crafted for you just the way God intended it. Even if you have thrown away past opportunities, you have today's opportunities. And greatness is something that God will decide what it is. Cups of cold water in His name. Interacting with children. Those are the examples He gave. And what the world is telling us is all coming from the evil stepmother that's been on death and usurping our proper position, stealing our joy. Is there comfort in all this? Yes. But the comfort's not in circumstances. God seeks to be our comfort. It's an epic tale. It's an adventure. It's... A stunning opportunity to do something great for every one of us. And it's only going to last two minutes. We interviewed the person that was supervising this two-minute ride at Disneyland. And he estimated, after our grandkids got off crying, and I asked him, uh, what percentage of the kids come off of this ride crying? He said, oh, about half. (laughs) Well, that's it. That's it. Do we have the maturity to understand what our ride's about and, and embrace it and enjoy it? Or are we just going to cry and ask our mom if we can go to the exit and wait for everybody else to get off? That's an option. That's not the one we want to take. God, thank you for this great adventure you've given us, this epic tale that you've put us in. And God, I pray that even though we're hobbit-like in our power, uh, that you'll help us understand you've given us immense power in your spirit. That we're in a fellowship that can do great things if we'll be faithful to serve in these battles that you give us along the way. Help us gain perspective on the immense opportunity that this 
thing called life, this two-minute adventure ride you've given us. And help us understand that it's the only chance we get to know you by faith, the only opportunity. Don't let us waste one second of it, Lord. Don't let us waste one second. And help us embrace every aspect, the valleys, the mountains, and the in-betweens, because we know you've ordained these steps for us that we might grow and become who you've made us to be. Thank you, Jesus, for this promise that you crowned us with glory and honor. Help us not throw it away. In Jesus' name, amen.